position. Ask me any questions you want. Um, it's very informal and it's a good opportunity for me to get to know you a bit as well. So um, that's just a little bit on that one. But yeah, right. So we are in Exodus and we are in Exodus chapter two today. So if you do have a Bible, you can turn to it. I'm going to read it in a second. But before I get there, I just want to give you a brief recap because I recognise that um, there were lots of faces that I see today that I didn't see last week. So let's just have a really brief recap. So Exodus chapter 1 is the start of a story about God redeeming his people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, and they are in captivity in Egypt. They've been there for 400 years and they've got a pharaoh ruling over them now. And this pharaoh is, um, is ruling through subjugation through imposing his power on people. And it's the same for all of the, the, the Egyptians. They are imposing their power on this subjugated people group, the, the Hebrews. And what we're going to see in the story of, he, of uh, Hebrews, of, of Exodus, is God's redeeming his people. He's going to bring them out of captivity. He's going to deliver them from the position that they're in. And so last week I spoke about this, and in the midst of this, in chapter 1, you've got the story of these two midwives, Shephra and Pua, and they are faithful to God. And I spoke about how our culture resembles this Egyptian culture. We love power, and we're self-obsessed, and God calls us to be faithful in the midst of our culture. So I spoke about that last week, and some of what I'm going to say today is going to carry on from that as well. So um, we're going to read all of Exodus 2 together. We won't do this every week because we've got 18 weeks, and there's more than 18 chapters in Exodus. But it, I just really felt in order to be able to communicate what I wanted to communicate today, I needed to read the whole chapter to you because there's a few things I want to pull out as we go along. But also, as I was preparing this, you know, sometimes when you prepare a talk, those of you who have had the opportunity to do this, whether that's for church or in a sort of uh, a secular environment, sometimes you know exactly what you want to say, and then other times you have to take a lot of work to it. And so when I was kind of looking at this week, I could have preached about nine or ten different messages from this that were all relevant. And um, I was chatting to Jazz in the office this week, and she said, what do you think God wants to say to us this week? And I was like, no, fair play. So I went back and I looked at it again, and I, I was like, yeah, no, that's what God wants to say to us. Um, so... We are going to read it through because I think it will help me get to where I want to go. See. So, right, verse 1 of chapter 2. I'm in the NIV today. Um, so, now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Um, so, my first question of when I read this was, what if he wasn't a fine child? <laughs> um, because if you read two verses beforehand, Pharaoh's just said throw all the baby boys into the Nile. So, I mean, this is like, this is a bad situation, right? Verse 3. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it in tar and pitch. Now, this is really significant. So the papyrus basket in the Hebrew is, 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 is a word that is only used at one other place in Scripture, and that is in Genesis 6. And in Genesis 6, God tells Noah to build an ark and cover it with tar and pitch. So what happens is that this woman builds a little ark for this baby and she covers it with tar and pitch. See, God is about to deliver his people. You see that in Genesis 6, when God creates the ark, it's all about deliverance. It's pointing straight away here. God is about to deliver his people. So she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds on the bank of the Nile. The Nile is not like the Stour or the Stour, however you want to pronounce it. It's a big river. It's got crocodiles in it. This woman puts this baby, this three-month-old child, in a basket in this giant river. Imagine being in the situation that that seems like a logical thing to do. 
Like, she's, she's actually obeyed what Pharaoh's told them to do, throw the babies into the Nile, but she's placed the baby in an ark. But, that, I mean, imagine getting to that point where you go, yeah, this, this seems sensible. I'm going to do this. She's acting out of both fear but also faith at the same time. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. So the, the mum can't stand to see it. That's what you see in this. The mum can't stand to see what's going on, so she leaves the sister to watch. Then this amazing God-ordained moment happens. The Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw a baby. He was crying. You would be crying if you were left in a river on your own. She felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Now, you might ask, how did she know it was a Hebrew baby? Well, Hebrew baby boys were circumcised, okay? Then his sister... I mean, this I mean, incredible grace of God asked Pharaoh's daughter, you can imagine her sidling up along the riverbank, uh, excuse me, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mum. I mean, imagine if you were the mother, you've left this baby in the river, and then, and then the daughter comes back, mum, you would not believe what's just happened. Somebody's found the baby, and it's not just anybody, it's Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, imagine the moment, you'd be like, this is incredible. What a story of God's grace over this woman's faith. I could preach a whole message on this. I'm not. <laughs> take this baby. So, and then Pharaoh's daughter said to the woman, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. <laughs> oh, parents, imagine getting paid to bring up your children. <laughs> That'd be amazing, wouldn't it? God's, just, God's generous hand of grace is over this woman's life because she's acted in faith. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So first thing I wanted to say today properly, that this child has an unusual upbringing. Maybe you've got an unusual upbringing. He is both brought up as a Hebrew, the lowest in the land of Egypt, the ones who are subjugated and enslaved, and as an elite person in the, in the, in the, in the Egyptian uh, culture. The, 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 the family, the royal family were seen as the elite. They were worshipped as gods. Moses is both the lowest and the highest. He's experienced what it is to be both. And he understands what it is to be adopted into a family that's not his own. Maybe you can see yourself in that in some way. So Moses is in this incredible situation. And um, if you want to read outside of the Bible, Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, writes after the time of Jesus, actually says that there's this kind of Jewish tradition that Moses wasn't just a nobody. In fact, actually, he was a a commander of uh, Egyptian armies, and they went off and fought the Ethiopians, and Moses was the commander. There's this idea that Moses isn't just a nobody. He's actually ingrained himself within this culture that I spoke about last week. He's become part of it. And anyway, then we get to verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up. Now, if you want to read Acts 7, Stephen actually gives us how Jews thought about the age of things. And they were looking at um, Moses' life in a series of 40 years. So between verses 10 and verse 11, he's now 40 years old. One day after Moses had grown up. I was 39 last week, so this means that I'm not a grown-up yet. (laughs) Thank you very much. Set that one up, didn't I? He went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He's chosen to identify now with the Hebrews. There's something's happened at this moment in time. Looking this way and that one, the way you're seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him among the sand. What a stupid thing to do. 
The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. So Moses thinks he's identifying with his own people, but his own people reject him. And when Pharaoh heard of this, remember who's Pharaoh to Moses? Pharaoh is Moses' adopted granddad. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill troughs to, their waters, uh, to, to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. And when the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. So time is taking place here, yeah? There's like the, the story, um, it reads very quick, but there's things going on here. You don't marry somebody on the same day. <laughs> Zipporah had a, had a son. So Moses named him Gershom, saying, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. And then we get these strange verses right at the end. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So just to, uh, just to talk about those three last verses, because they are kind of strange in the context of the text. You might say that maybe God hadn't done anything by this point in time. And now all of a sudden he hears the cry of the Israelites and he does something. But we know, having read the story, that God is clearly at work. God is already at work before his people cry out to him. So we don't believe, as, as, as a church, we're not what's called open theists. So an open theist is somebody who believes that God changes his mind. So, it, so some people would believe, because of free will, because we've all got free will, we can do what we want, what God does is he reacts to our free will. So God's kind of reacting to the decisions that we make. Who's in charge in that kind of world? We are. And God's reactive. And some people would argue that these three verses here demonstrate that God can kind of, uh, that, that basically God's waiting for, for somebody to do something. But actually, we know that God's already done it. God's already prepared a plan of deliverance. This baby was placed in an ark. You can see it in the text. But also the other thing here as well, and remember I spoke about last week, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, um, dies, and another pharaoh takes over. Who's the next pharaoh? Is it, is it Moses' adopted father? Is it his adopted brother? We don't know. Because pharaoh is an ideal, an idea in this story. Pharaoh is a concept as much as it is a person. Pharaoh is what it looks like to be anti-God. So pharaoh is represented by more than one person in the story, but really, realistically, as we'll see later on, as you get into um, Exodus, it will be just as bad as it was in chapter 1. Okay, so what do I want to say, uh, talk about today? Well, I think that the verse where it talks about Moses' name is very significant to us. Pharaoh's daughter names Moses. Moses is an Egyptian name. The name means to be taken out, to be drawn out of water. Now, significantly, in, in the Exodus story, what, what's the big point of deliverance? God's people are, what happens to them? They are drawn out of the water. They are drawn out of the Red Sea. God delivers them from the Egyptians through passing through the Red Sea on dry land, yeah? I'm spoiling the story for you, but that's what happens. Okay? 
So Moses' name is already a pointer to what is going to happen in the future. But also I think what we find in chapter 2 of, uh, of, um, of our story here is that Moses is being called out. Moses is being drawn out. He's being drawn out from Egypt to Midian. There is a journey taking place. He is being called out from the power and authority that he had towards becoming a foreigner and a stranger. There's this transference taking place. He's journeying. Does that make sense? You can see it in the story. That's why I needed to read the whole narrative to you. He's being called out. Now, you read the story. What happens with him? It doesn't look like he's really being called out, does he? He murders somebody and he runs away. But if we were to go to the New Testament and read Hebrews chapter 11, what we would find is that God is doing something in the midst of this. And actually, there's something else going on internally with Moses that we don't necessarily see in the the text in Exodus. Because this is what the writer to the Hebrews says is going on. Hebrews 11, verses 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. doesn't sound like that happens in our story, does it? He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. So he sees the Egyptian beating the Hebrew, but there's something internally going on with him. He's already decided he is going to leave his Egyptian heritage and follow after his Hebrew heritage. He's going to follow Yahweh. That's what's going on internally with him. Now, he makes a stupid, ill-informed decision that is not, was, was not good. He murders somebody. But it, I think that demonstrates maybe the culture that, of which he'd been brought up into. He'd been brought up as an Egyptian. Egyptians were all about power and control. He, he acts out of what he's learned. He's learned behaviour. So he murders the guy. It's not good. It's ungodly behaviour. It's a sin. But at the meantime, actually, something else is going on internally with him. There's a faith act taking place. Now, I think in this chapter, you can also see Moses beginning to walk in the way of Jesus. So Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8 says this about Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I think Moses is starting to walk in the way of Christ in our story. Let me just explain what I mean. He empties himself of his royal benefits. Moses had the opportunity to be high up in Egypt for the rest of his life. But he gives it over. He lays it down. Just in the same way that Christ lays aside his majesty. You remember we sing that, you might remember the old song. Lays aside it so that he might take on the nature of a servant. In a similar way, Moses lays aside his royalty in order to become obedient to God and be a servant for God. He humbles himself. And in humbling himself, what happens? He suffers the rejection of his own people. He thinks he's going to get their approval, but they reject him. Jesus, in the same way, was rejected by his people. So Moses comes out of the kingdom of Egypt and ends up in the the kingdom of Midian. But there's something in this for us today as well. You see, we are in a similar way called like Moses is in faith and obedience to leave the kingdoms of this world, the cultures of this world, this world's worldview, the way the world works, that's what we sort of talk about. 
We've spoken about this morning. I think you, you, Anna, you use the word the world. We talk about this, don't we? We're called out of the world and we're called into Christ's kingdom. So we're called out in order to go into Christ's kingdom. We're called out from the way that our culture perceives um, what is success, whether that's fear, whether that's, um, uh, sorry, success through power, success through fame, success through fortune, maybe wanting to um, uh, subjugate people through fear. That, all of these things are in our culture and we're called out of those things and into Christ's kingdom. So we're called to do that. We're called to walk into it. And as Christians, you take a step of faith when you become a Christian. It's a step of faith and obedience. I'm going to choose to follow Jesus. It's a step of faith and obedience. But there's something else going on when you do that. Colossians 1 verses 13 and 14 says this. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So when you are you are called out of the kingdoms of this world in order to join Christ in his kingdom, you do it as an act of faith and obedience. But at the same time, at the same moment, you are being rescued by his grace. You are being called through faith and obedience, just as Moses was. He was walking in faith and obedience, but also at the same time, God was rescuing Moses from his heritage and he was bringing him into his plan for his life. There was something going on. He was being called from the kingdom of Egypt into the kingdom of God. You and I are being called from the kingdoms of the world into Christ's kingdom. But it doesn't stop there. You see, God doesn't call us out of the world to become hermits. He's not called us out of the world to become like the Amish in the States who live separate from the rest of society. We don't engage with it. We don't indulge in it. We, we stay separate from it. He's not called us to that. In fact, actually, we've been called out from the kingdoms of the world into Christ's kingdom so that we can be commissioned to go back again. So we've been called out from the kingdoms of the world by God's grace, by his mercy, by his love, into Christ's kingdom that we might go back into the kingdoms of the world to demonstrate what Christ's kingdom looks like to the people around us. That's the, that is what God has done and is doing in your life. So the danger is what we can do is we can, we can think, well, maybe God doesn't want me to have anything to do with this, this culture that is evil, that is not good, that is dark. No, God wants, God wants you in that culture. God wants you in that culture. He doesn't want you to conform, as Paul writes in Romans 12, he doesn't want you to conform anymore to the pattern of this world. He doesn't want you to do that. He wants you to go into that world and transform it. You are called to be a person who brings Christ's kingdom to the world around you. You see, it's so funny. Our society wants a lot of what we believe in. They want mercy. They want justice. They want love. They want forgiveness. But they want it all without the king. They want the kingdom, but they don't want the king. And you and I are called to go into our culture and demonstrate what the king looks like. We're called to demonstrate what the king looks like. And we can do this in three ways. You see, we are called to be Christ's agents of reconciliation, redemption, and renewal. Paul writes in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that, we are that he is an ambassador for Christ and a minister of reconciliation. You and I are called to be ambassadors for Jesus and ministers of reconciliation to the world around us. So what does that mean? Well... Reconciliation is bringing things that are hostile, peace. So we're called to be peacemakers. But we're called to reconcile what is lost with the king. We're called to bring people to the king. We're called to bring what is lost, what is broken to the king and demonstrate what it looks like when things are fixed, are well. We're called to bring redemption. 
You and I are called as God's people to redeem what is broken in society. What is broken in your workplace, what is broken in the culture that you live in. And we're called to bring renewal. Jesus says at the end of the Bible, I'm making all things new. You and I are called to be agents of renewal. What does that mean? That means actually bringing the king back into the kingdom again. We're called to bring Christ into whatever field of work that we do, whatever business we do. We are called to come and bring redemption to it. We're coming called to bring renewal to it. We're coming called to demonstrate what it looks like, what this, what, whatever area it is looks like when, when somebody who follows Jesus is in it. So if you're in the arts, you're called to bring redemption to it. You're called to bring renewal to it. If you're in uh, business or finance, you're called to come and bring God's kingdom values into that place. We're called, no matter what it is, if you're in education, you are called to bring God's kingdom values back into that environment. If you're in, there's a lot of people in, in the medical industry here, if you are called to that, if you're called into the NHS, you are called to bring God's kingdom into that place, demonstrating what Christ looks like to the people around you, the, the, the real healer. That's what you're called to bring. You see, we're called to be agents of reconciliation, of redemption, of renewal. And as we do that, society around us will transform and people will start to see the king. So, practically then, what does it look like to be a citizen of God's kingdom? Well, um, I've used this alliteration before, words, words, works and wonders. You and I can be agents for Christ in the environment that we're in through the the words that we say, the works that we do, and the wonders that we expect. So just walking through that really quickly. Look, you and I can actually demonstrate Christ and his kingdom to the darkness of the kingdom around us through the works that we do. Now, these are not just... We see, we don't just do good... We don't do good works to earn God's approval. We've be, God approves of us, therefore we can do good works. And we get to do those good works into the society that we're in. We get to demonstrate the generosity of God. We get to demonstrate um, loving others. We get to demonstrate what servant-heartedness looks like. We can demonstrate those things. But also, I would say, works are things like praying for people. Do you pray for your workplace? Is that something you do? Do you get in early to pray for your workplace? When I was a teacher, I used to go into my classroom early and pray over different seats in the room, particularly when I had a difficult class. Why? Because I know that the king's kingdom can come into that room. I know that the king has the authority in that space, and I want to pray God's kingdom into that place. And I want to demonstrate, I want God's help as I do that. So we can do it through the works that we do. We can also speak the word. You see, we're not called just to be people of action. It's not enough. That's just, just like, you know, altruism, doing good works. If you do good works but never tell people you're a Christian, how do they know? How do they know? How do they know who you follow unless you actually say? So we're called to demonstrate, but we're also called to proclaim. Hey, I'm a Christian. Believe in Jesus. Why are you different? Why are you always happy? They never say that about me. <laughs> Why are you always happy? What is it about you? What's different about you? See, we're not called just to do. We're called to speak. But also we're called to expect. That in the situations that we find ourselves in, we're called to expect that God will turn up and be with us. We want to we do the stuff of the kingdom. See, God's kingdom is, 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 about, is about what's going to happen, not just now, but in eternity. We know that in eternity, there's no more sickness, no more death, no more pain. And in the New Testament, we find that the apostles are, um, go around, they pray for the sick, and the sick are healed. What is that? 
Well, it's a sign pointing to, towards the time that is to come when there will be no more sickness and no more death. You and I are called to just do the same today. We're called to go into the society around us and demonstrate what the, the coming kingdom looks like, what Christ the King looks like, and expect God to turn up. So we're called to these three things. But I just want to say as I finish this, this isn't just a call for some of you. This is a call for all of us. Remember in our story, Moses is one who is both low and high. He's from an environment and a family that looks, in, in many ways, broken. He's adopted out of his own family. He's been brought up by his mum, but there's almost this kind of pretense going on that she's just his, his like, nurse. He's, he's brought up in this, in, this, uh, in this world where he's considered a slave and nothing, yet he then becomes a prince. And you might see in him, and then he murders somebody. So if you think that you're not good enough for God, Moses murders somebody. That's pretty bad, isn't it? Yeah? If you think that you can't be used by God because of something you did in your past, Moses killed somebody and then hid it. That is not good. But God is a God of grace. God is a God. It's not about you. It's about what he's done. You see, it's not this calling for you, this commissioning for you to go out into the world. is not just for some people in the room. You can't sit there today and think, oh, this is for the person next to me. It's not for me. I'm not going to go into my workplace and do these things because I'm not good enough for God. You are good enough for him. You are loved by him. You have been chosen by him. He has called you out of the kingdoms of the world and he has placed you into his kingdom that you are commissioned to go back. It is a commission over all of us, not just over some of us. And if you could get hold of this, if you could actually live this out, your workplace, your environment would start to change because the king's kingdom would start to come through you. And it takes faith and obedience to Jesus, but also a recognition that it is God's grace at work in your life. And so I suppose I'm going to leave you with a bit of a challenge today, which is why not when you get up on, well, you're going to have a lovely day off tomorrow, most of us, but why not when you get up on Tuesday morning this week, say, God, I want to be useful for your kingdom today. I want to demonstrate what it looks like. I want to be your agent of renewal in my workplace. Show me how I can do it. Show me, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you lead me today? Lead me to be your agent of renewal in my environment. It's going to look different for all of us. But be expectant of what God will do through you. You know, it starts with each of us saying, actually, do you know what? I'm going to be open to the way of God. I'm going to walk in faith and obedience. Just like Moses did, he walked in faith and obedience. And we're going to do the same. So let me pray as we finish. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you. We thank you for, for Moses. We thank you for the example that we see in him of what, of what faith looks like. He considered, uh, considered uh, you greater than the riches of Egypt. Lord, we thank you that you've called us out of the kingdoms of this world. Any other worldview, <laughs> any other culture, you've called us out of it and you've called us into your kingdom to demonstrate back to the world what a king looks like. And so, Lord, we pray for each of us this week. Father, I pray for opportunities to demonstrate your kingship through the words that we speak, the works that we do, and the wonders that we expect. Lord, I pray this week as we step out into the world around us, God, give us opportunities to be your agents of renewal, reconciliation, and redemption, Lord, to the people around us. Father, we want to see your kingdom come in Ashford. Lord, we want to see Jesus, we want to see your rule and reign manifest itself in people's lives that we meet. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray today that you would do that through us in your precious and mighty name. Amen. Amen. Lastly, I just want to say, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, <laughs> there's, there's an opportunity in what I've said today. 
God is calling you, as inviting you to step out of the kingdom of darkness, what that might look like for you in terms of your life. Maybe you just feel trapped in sin. You feel trapped in things. You just can't help but do them. He's inviting you to step out of those things and follow him.